When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence, no. Money does buy you pleasure, and pleasure is good, but it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world-leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. Today's episode is one I recorded a few months ago and have hesitated putting it out because talking about fertility can feel stressful. And this podcast is about helping people do the opposite, helping people to unwind. But not discussing important topics is neither helpful or healthy for us. Knowledge is power. And this is a road to even greater inner peace. Like with all fear and stress, the bravery in facing topics that we may not want to face is when the healing happens. I started a fertility journey about a year ago, and it's been very up and down. I will share more on that soon. But after I froze my eggs the first time, I decided I wanted to know everything I possibly could about fertility preservation. Today's guest is Dr. Helen O'Neill, a lecturer in reproductive and molecular genetics at UCL and the CEO and founder of Hertility Health, a company helping women have access to their reproductive and fertility health data through easy at-home tests. Dr. Helen shares her insights into fertility and why women's health has been largely neglected. I hope you find this chat as interesting and necessary as I did. Dr. Helen, you are on a reproductive revolution. What is that and why is it needed? We are part of a generation of women who want to back their bodies, understand. We are an information generation. We have answers at our fingertips. And yet we have very little answers about our own bodies. And that to me is something that we need to invest more of our time, energy and expertise into is understanding, being experts in our own body. So I have created a solution to enable women to understand their bodies through blood testing and gynecology services, but really just monitoring what it is that your body is going through every single month and year. Why is it that we know so little about our reproductive health? I think we know so little about women's health full stop. 
this is kind of a systemic problem within the healthcare industry is that women's health has been completely sidelined. And this goes back further to former clinical trials, where I think from a preventative or protective mechanism, women weren't included in clinical trials because if you got pregnant, this would be a problem. And there was obviously many occurrences, the thalidomide, where pregnant women were given medication that led to horrific birth defects. So it was initially intended to be protective. But when you go back to even pre-human clinical trials, so when we're working in mouse models to figure things out, you need a lot more controls and subjects in order to counter the fact that we have a menstrual cycle. And so that the fact that we have this dynamic change of our hormones throughout every single month and actually throughout our lives as well. So It means that any of the drugs we have, anything like that, have never been really tested on women. But when it comes to today's technologies, our understanding of genetics, our understanding of really being able to interrogate data, that's just not good enough. So when we started fertility as a clinical trial to determine whether we could predict different pathologies using menstrual cycle patterns, using symptoms, using really common occurrences that we all go through to say, could we have predicted this? pathology in an individual. Pathology could be anything from hyperthyroidism to polycystic ovaries, like really prevalent conditions. We were still using diagnostic criteria and guidelines that are consensus-led. So a bunch of people get in a room and they decide, "Mm, in my clinical experience, there's many different people with the same thing. Yes, it's this. And that's great to an extent. But when we have such a diversity of individuals and lifestyle factors and changes in our lives, that's not really good enough. We need a patient-centric approach and certainly a data-first approach. So we decided to build the data from the ground up with fertility. I can't believe, and I heard you say this um, recently, that it was only in the early 90s that women were uh, were even included in clinical trials. 1993. Which is extraordinary considering that all the medications, I would suspect, then on the market haven't really been tested on women. You're much more likely to die as a woman on medication because most of them have not been tested on women. And has medication changed since women have been included in these tests? I would say not drastically. I spoke with a very senior person at a very big pharmaceutical company who's told me that in their last 27 clinical trials, they had included 27 women total. So I don't think we're making too much progress, actually. What I find most inspiring about this reproductive revolution that you are on is the fact that we've been so miseducated about fertility. I mean, in many ways, I didn't even know what fertility meant in actuality, you know, it's a word. It's amazing that you say that. So I had a conversation with Matt Britton, who's the president of Google, and we had a long dinner together and he said, you could help millions of billions of women with what you're doing. He was very kindly brought me into Google and he said, let's help you find what people are searching for. And one of the most searched terms around fertility, and bearing in mind we had called it fertility, uh, we use a lot of, you know, anatomy puns in what we do. And one of the most searched terms was what is fertility? So where we're trying to look to really extensive root causes, many people just didn't even know what their own fertility was, let alone that there is a significant age-related fertility decline that we all go through. Yeah, let's talk about that because I think there's a lot of fear and yet in some ways fear for good reason. So what is the relationship between age and fertility? I think we have this strange way of removing different 
physiological processes. We all know that we age and that there are things that happen to our skin as we get older. That's a very well-recognized industry and we are sold a lot of treatments around that. And yet, when we look on the inside, of course, our internal organs are aging, but the fastest aging organ in the body is the ovary. So by the time we are 30, 86% of our egg reserve is gone. And yet, because we've had this huge shift in our societal expectations, in our demands, in our responsibilities, in our lifestyle choices, 30 is the new 20. And we cannot catch up with Mother Nature, who is not going to wait for us. So we can make all the changes we want around our lives, but it's an unfortunate and shocking statistic that for many people, when they embark on a fertility journey in their 30s, they will be met with disappointment and sadness. Often the age of 35 is referenced a lot. Is that accurate? So it's amazing you say that because we always talk about if 35 is being the fertility cliff. And by the way, this is true of both males and females. But I really should take a moment to mention that an article came out saying there's no such thing as the fertility cliff. And everyone myself included, you know, you, you cling on to these things. It's like when a headline says, you know, chocolate's good for you. You're like, I knew it, eat it up. Or wine is good for you. Everyone's like, giddy up, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and we really cling on to these like pieces of hope because it just makes life a little bit easier to, like, these things that hard facts easier to swallow. But unfortunately, it's not just the number of eggs that declines as we get older, the most significant change that we see is in the quality of those eggs. And so from 35 onwards, you are in much higher significance to have the incorrect number of chromosomes. And that results in maybe Down syndrome or Edward or Patau syndrome or higher incidence of miscarriage. And the, the main cause of miscarriage really is that your eggs have the wrong number of chromosomes and so wouldn't really fertilize properly. Now let's talk about a huge point that you just mentioned, which is men and women both have a biological clock. Because I think there is a wide assumption that men don't have a biological clock because you see pop stars having babies in their 70s. Mm. Do men have a biological clock? Absolutely. And I think age affects male sperm differently. So we know that every 16 years, the mutation rate doubles in men. So you take a 16-year-old, you double it, you double it. And now actually we're seeing a lot of dads in their 40s having children. And there's a much higher mutation rate within their sperm. It's a, we naturally accrue mutations throughout our lives. It's part of the aging process. And that is no different to sperm. And furthermore, our exposures and our lifestyles are quite different. So we, we know, or maybe we don't, um, that in the last 50 years, male sperm counts have halved. So we're now compounding the fact that male sperm counts have halved with the fact that dads are getting much older. And that's really contributing to this overall global statistics of one in six being infertile. Because there are so many men that are having children in their 40s, much more than obviously women having children in their 40s, there does seem to be this like great disparity in that. What would you like men to know about their fertility? And what would you like women to know about men's fertility more than is known now? I think the most important thing is recognizing that the onus is not just on the woman, mm. that both people should be preparing in that preconception phase for a healthy pregnancy. There is so much evidence showing how much 
um, how better health outcomes in babies, mm. in pregnancies, through just investing in that preconception phase. And this is even more true of men's preconception health because the life cycle of a sperm is three months. So within three months, you can radically change the quantity, quality of sperm just through lifestyle changes, no alcohol, no drugs, no smoking, a little bit more exercise, no trans fats in your diet, or even reducing those things. But so many couples I see who are going through a fertility journey and the woman is doing everything she can. She is doing acupuncture, yoga, kale smoothies, and her partner is out every single night as if he's just the guy who shows up to fertilize. So I, I think a lot of women should say, do not let your sperm come near my precious <laughs> egg until it's in good shape. I love this. So let's talk about preserving our fertility. What age should we be really thinking about preserving our fertility? And has there been evidence to suggest that even though, as you just quite shockingly shared, we've lost 86% of our eggs by the time we're 30, mm. but how much influence do lifestyle factors have on whether we're able to extend our biological window? Our lifestyle plays the biggest role in everything that we do. One thing that we've been really fascinated to see in fertility is the data. We get real truth data because... So exciting. We have a digital interface where we ask you lots of questions. And traditionally, that interface is between a patient and a doctor. And most people sit in front of a doctor and they will give them the very polished version of events. So do you drink? Moderately. Do you take drugs? No. Do you have any? It's <laughs> not the version of events that you're really going to give a complete stranger. And that, that's a very unnatural dynamic, right? You're going to tell them the, your most intimate lifestyle behaviors, your uh, previous sexual encounters, if you had any infection, uh, how often you're having sex, how you bleed. These are things that most people lock up when they're telling a complete stranger, especially when that stranger needs to make an assessment on you, therefore a judgment as to what they can be do or how much of the medical problem that you're experiencing is your own fault. So that's to me why using a digital interface to get all of this information helps us to help people in a much more productive way because we can highlight the things that they may not be aware that they're doing aren't good for them. To give an example, of 230,000 women who did our health assessment, of the women who were actively trying to conceive, 8% are taking drugs. And so these things seem quite obvious. 40% are, are drinking alcohol, and, and of the 40%, about 8% are drinking way above the national limit. So these are people who present and they say, I cannot get pregnant. Why? And the doctor's saying, well, do you drink? Moderately. A glass of wine a night, maybe they'll say. That glass of wine a night is a very big one, so closer to a goblet. And so then you're not really going to get proper advice from somebody if they don't have the whole truth. In terms of preserving your fertility, this is something I get asked a lot. What age is the perfect age? At 18, should we all be freezing our eggs? And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think that we are so uneducated about our own bodies that a small investment into understanding our cycles, how we can get pregnant, when we can't get pregnant, any abnormalities to recognize would be the best way to educate a younger generation of women all the way through. And that monitoring your reproductive health, we say track your ovaries over your calories, tracking yourself every single year is a much better way of knowing where you're at along your journey, as opposed to this idea that we can just freeze our eggs. There's a lot of 
many different steps along the way to freezing eggs and they don't necessarily always lead to success. One thing you said to me was if you're thinking about freezing your eggs, act like you're preparing for a pregnancy. Yeah. I don't think that's wide knowledge. No. Well, you think about what your your body is going through, right? So we know already that women who are trying to conceive are less likely to get pregnant if they drink at certain times of their cycle. So more so than others, right? When you think about every single month, your menstrual cycle is this very complex calculus of events that is happening to prepare your body every month for a pregnancy. So your hormones will reach certain times in order to enable certain processes like an egg being released. But when we have that process of ovulation occurring, there's lots of different oocytes within each of your ovaries and they're preparing themselves. When you're treating your body as though nothing were happening, of course you're going to suffer the consequences. We can readily recognize the consequences of alcohol, lack of sleep, even just, you know, lack of exercise on our body and our mental well-being. And then this is what I say about our ability to detach and say, oh, this is bad for one part of my body, or we know that aging affects our skin, but what about internally? It's no different to, you can easily recognize that alcohol has an effect on your cognitive function, on your liver, your kidneys. Of course, it's going to have an effect on your ovaries. It's a process, a very dynamic process that's happening within your ovaries to create, nurture, and release this egg in the hopes that you're going to, you know, procreate. So I really feel that when we're doing that times 10, 20 through an IVF process or through an egg freezing process, because if you think about it, when you're freezing your eggs, you go through a stimulation cycle. That's stimulating your body. It's putting more hormones in you so that whatever happens ordinarily on a regular physiological menstrual cycle, one egg being released, you're now going to make that happen 10 times as much or more. So when you're trying to nurture 10 times as many eggs course you should treat your body like it is you know about to undergo a marathon no different to a pregnancy when people are choosing their egg freezing clinics let's say that is something somebody wants to do are there things they should look out for and things they should be wary of because this is becoming a big industry so I wonder is there best practices or is there actually some wayward characters in the market I think the best advice I would give is to go to in the UK anyway, the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, which is the HFEA uh, website, which literally lists every clinic in the UK. So we only refer to highly rated clinics and you'll see the metrics. So they'll have price, success rates, whether the clinics are kind of overly pushing additional IVF add-ons that aren't necessary for you. That's a really good place to start, but we will, if, if you come to us, we refer to really good clinics. I have been horrified by the research around what actually cigarette smoke does to sperm and to eggs. I would love to kind of hear any of the sort of research that stands out to you where this isn't just, we know smoking's bad, we know drinking's bad, but what is the reality of some of these lifestyle habits all of us partake in? And it's kind of okay when it's to do with other pieces of health. Let's say, you know, we can kind of get through being sleep deprived, but actually what's the reality on our reproductive health? To me, I think the biggest problem we're seeing is actually not just smoking, because I think smoking is actually, has gone down significantly, mm. but the incidence of vaping, mm. everybody vapes. And with smoking, at least there's a personal limit, right? You can't smoke 10 back-to-back -back cigarettes, mm. you'll feel sick. But you can continuously vape because this, fine, it might make you feel a little bit, 
woozy, but the reality is it's like a lollipop. They are flavors that are targeted that make you enjoy the process and be able to do it in a continuous basis to where you're getting so much more. And all of the compounds within e-cigarettes actually are very often not regulated for consumption. So they take flavorings and they say, well, these have been approved for consumption, but not combustion. There's a very big difference between eating something and burning it and inhaling it. And so we actually did a study in my group looking at the effect of e-cigarettes on sperm. And if you look down the microscope and you saw sperm pre and post exposure, we, we did really cool experiments too, where we put mice in air controlled cages and we dosed the amount that they were getting. So they were breathing it. We looked at their testes. It had an impact on their testis size. It had an impact on the sperm. It outright certain flavors. Cinnamon was like the one that stuck in my mind looking at sperm pre and post exposure, even at really low doses. It went from being this healthy, thriving image of millions of swimmers to like these dead twitching entities that I just thought this is crazy that kids are able to do this without limit and without the limit of finances either. They're cheap, they're accessible. There's no limit in terms of even making yourself feel sick. It's There's no limit because your parents can't catch you. They're not going to smell it on you. There were so many limits, at least with cigarettes, where people would have to stop to a certain extent. And those have seemed to have gone out the window when it comes to vaping. So I think we're going to see a big problem with that too. What are your thoughts on marijuana? Because, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend trying to get pregnant and she's taking edibles to go to sleep. And I have started to read a little bit about this. And I was thinking, oh, I'm not too sure. And she said, no, no, it's, I've spoken to doctors that have said it's fine. And again, we've seen a massive rise in edibles, anything around like marijuana, especially in the States. Do you know anything about kind of the impact on marijuana and fertility? There's a lot of evidence to suggest that these can make changes within kind of epigenetic changes that we're going to see afterwards. What's really hard about this and what I love about our database is the fact that it's quite difficult to quantify when nobody tells the truth. How many people who get pregnant, who have postnatal difficulties are going to say, hey doc, do you think it was because of all the marijuana I smoked? They're not going to say that. They're going to say nothing. So you're going to really never get to the bottom of those things because as I mentioned, people tell you the best version of events and especially when something goes wrong, they will internalize the worry that they have about that and say nothing. So we never really get proper evidence on it in the real world, especially when it comes to dosage and quantity and frequency of these things, because it's so arbitrary. You know, what's a lot to you could be nothing to somebody else. Interesting. What are the things you most want people to know about fertility? If you could have, and you do have many billboards, but in terms of really like the education, what are the three things you'd want to be on the fertility billboard? We did have a funny billboard saying the vampire strikes back and it was kind of calling out the fact that there's so little funding into women's health but to me I think that we should better understand our hormones everyone needs a hormone 101 whether you're male female anything if you think about your hormones they control every aspect of your life your weight mood skin appetite sex drive metabolism sleep and yet if you ask the majority of people do you know what your hormones are doing most people say no. 
And yet when you look at global trends, the number one prescribed drug in the world is thyroxine for a thyroid imbalance. So the number one thing that we are prescribing for is hormone imbalance. And yet people are so detached from understanding their hormones. And because the symptoms of hormone imbalance, again, are so insidious, you feel tired, you feel hungry, you feel fat, you feel lethargic, you put on weight, you can't put on weight, you can't lose weight. All of us feel fat and hungry most of the time or fat and tired most of the time. It's just our lives, right? Like the day-to-day grind kind of are great reasons for why we feel all of these things. And we're much sooner to, or much quicker to blame ourselves and our poor lifestyle behaviors or our extreme workload on those feelings. But of all the people who've ever done a fertility test, around 60% of people have at least one out of range hormone. And those are things like many of the hormones you can invest in. You can make dietary changes. You can, we've done so much research. So when we built the fertility test, we wanted to take into account all of the different symptoms associated with hormone imbalance, all of the different symptoms or menstrual patterns or biometrics that are associated with any of the reproductive conditions that could lead to a reduced fertility or affect your overall reproductive health. And so that was a very, carefully curated algorithm that helps us to determine now 18 of the most common gynecological pathologies. So we're really proud of that predictive capability. And then we, we how we do that is that, that comprehensive health assessment with a, a blood test that you can do at home and you send it to our labs. But the next piece is really the piece I'm most proud of because what we've done is instead of in the typical scenario where you get blood results back from a doctor and it says your estradiol is 15 picomoles per milliliter out of a reference range of 8 to 100. Mm. And you go, what does that mean? Mm. We've taken all of the reference ranges, all of blood results, all of your health assessment, and we've put it into a really comprehensive report. It's like a virtual clinic where we say, for every hormone we test, what is it? Why do we test it? What it means for you? But then we've also taken everything into account. We've, t- we've coded 54,000 clinical scenarios so that we can really tailor everything, all the answers to you. But the next steps part is really cool. So we've looked at what are all of the things from lifestyle factors, be it through exercise, different types of exercise affect your hormones, be it through medication, you know, non-serotonin uptake inhibitors affect your hormones, be it through diet, different types of diet affect your hormones, be it through reproductive conditions or non-reproductive conditions, or what, what are any of those that could have caused any one of your hormones to be either elevated or deficient so that you can actually take the next steps to maybe improve one of those out-of-range hormones. So if somebody receives their test back and they start to notice that a few different hormone markers are actually way off track, if they create lifestyle interventions or they actually, you know, really commit to them, can you actually improve your fertility? I guess this is one of the age-old things. You can't change your fertility. And to an extent, I disagree with that because many people enter their fertility journey in a physiologically unwell state. Mm -hmm. So can you improve your egg reserve, increase the number of eggs you have? No. Can you increase your likelihood of getting pregnant? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I guess it depends on what you define fertility as, which is the ability to conceive. So if you, by changing your lifestyle factors, improving some of your hormones can actually improve your chances of getting pregnant, then yes, to an extent you can, albeit that you're, you will still have you know, a declining fertility as you get older. What are some interventions that you've seen dramatic results when people have applied them? You see the most extreme results in the most extreme of cases, right? So when people are very unhealthy and just give up certain things, that I think is, is probably the most 
instantaneous answer you'll see to when somebody can actually make a difference. What amazes me, I, I presented at a big international fertility conference and I was watching all of the other talks and they're looking at morphokinetics. Um, we do work on that as well of embryos on, you know, different metabolism and different ways that we can analyze an embryo as it's growing. And I sat there thinking the most important aspect to an embryo and its quality is the first determinants, the sperm and the egg. And so until we invest in healthy sperm and healthy egg through better lifestyle modifications, all of these very technological advances within the actual IVF clinic are quite limited. So we're much better off investing earlier on, which is why I really believe in this reproductive revolution that we all invest in understanding our own bodies, our own limitations and our own health so that we can not have to face those quite arduous journeys. So what sort of age, let's say we're talking about someone who isn't exactly thinking about actually having a child yet. So at what age do you encourage people to start really thinking about their fertility and mapping their hormones? I think everyone should understand where they're at at 18, mm. 19, 20 annually. Mm. But think about the rhetoric we have around the cervical smear. You kind of get shamed. You like we, we all put pressure on each other being like you're an idiot if you haven't gotten your smear test uh, because it's such an effective tool for screening for cervical cancer and your incidence of cervical cancer are one in 64 but your chance of having a reproductive health condition are one in three so why we wouldn't do an annual reproductive health check especially when we know that our hormones are constantly changing over the years or at least every two years three years such an investment into your overall well-being not just your fertility that I think everyone should do it from a young age and understand their limitations. If one in six is infertile, there's a lot of people who are going to go into, you know, premature menopause. And we had an amazing case of somebody who came to us. She said, I haven't had periods for years. I've gone to so many doctors. They don't know what's wrong with me. And she was 28. She's so beautiful. And the reason I mentioned that is because it shouldn't make a difference, but it did. Because everybody said to her, you look fine. You look great, in fact, despite the fact that reproductively she was not fine. And as soon as we tested her, we saw that she had basically early menopause. So she had premature ovarian insufficiency, which occurs in around one in a hundred. But what horrified me was the fact that she had every single textbook symptom and yet wasn't tested appropriately because she looked great. So that meant that she was able to freeze her eggs, go, through, go, you know, at a younger age when she was thinking, well, I'll, I'll probably have a family in my thirties. There was no way she was going to have a biological family of her own in her thirties. So I think if there's many more people that we can catch like that earlier on, then let's do it. Yeah. I mean, it's making me feel emotional because I got diagnosed with lower ovarian reserve. And that's why I feel so passionate about interviewing you because. I wouldn't, you know, I'm 32. Like, there was no reason why I should get my fertility checked. It's just because I was interested. I was curious. Instinctively, I, like, wanted to go get it done. And if we can just have far more women check, yeah. I really could have had a horrific reality for me as someone who wants children. Yeah. So you're saving so many people's lives in many ways uh, by providing an accessible uh, way to understand your reproductive health. Because the one thing I would say is this process is expensive in many cases. And this idea that egg freezing, you know, is an option, it's not an option for many. What are your thoughts about that? That's the fundamental reason why in ways we created fertility was to create an affordable alternative 
to egg freezing. For me, it was very strange. I'm I, a scientist and a lecturer in reproductive and molecular genetics. I work with experts, world-leading experts in fertility and reproductive health and worked on, you know, how we better understand embryo formation, how we better understand ovaries and egg formation. And yet I had no access to answers about my own body. And the only, the only options were to go through the NHS, which you're not going to get a routine fertility assessment through the NHS. It's amazing, but it's so overburdened at the moment. There's 530,000 women on a wait list just to see a gynecologist. So that puts it into perspective. Or to go to a private fertility clinic, which is very expensive. There's a, but it's more than the expense of a private fertility clinic. There's a psychological barrier as well to going to a fertility clinic if you're just mm. curious about your reproductive health. Mm. So we created Fertility um, for £149. You get all of these answers. It's extremely good value. And despite being told repeatedly, you need to think like the amount of, you know, IP, clinical experience, re- scientific experience that had gone into building this, you need to make it more expensive. And I have pushed back at every stage saying, this needs to be affordable to every single woman. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The research suggests that actually we're seeing a rise in miscarriages, even in women in their 20s. And I think I read something like the average female is way less fertile than her grandmother was. Why are we seeing this collective decline in fertility as a whole? We live in a very unhealthy world. We are surrounded by so many pollutants at all stages, whether it's plastics, whether it's environmental whether it's compounds that we're breathing, we literally can trace, you know, particles in the placentas of babies. And this shows you just how unhealthy our living environments are. So even in younger women, we have such higher exposures to chemicals, pollutants, phthalates, bisphenols, all of these really reproductively damaging compounds. And it's, it's unavoidable. That's what's sad and scary. It's crazy because I've been following Roundup glyphosate and it's still not banned in the UK. It's a fertilizer. What do Ironic you... to think it's a fertilizer, right? <laughs> right. I know, I know, right? I actually even thought about that. And so farmers spray it on their crops to avoid insects. What do you want to see from a government level, but also from an individual level? What do you want to see or what needs to happen in order for us to save our fertility? 
I think obviously compounds like that need to be looked at in a much more serious way. They're not because they're poorly understood. The level of plastics in our, in our everyday, everyone talks about microplastics and the planet, but what they don't talk about are the chemicals from plastics and people. And that by far and away is affecting the globe in a much bigger way because we're seeing such a rapid fertility decline because of the amount of chemicals from plastics that we're all exposed to. And unless and until from a government level, we start to regulate uses of plastics, uses of um, chemical compounds that get into every bit of our lives, whether it's the plastics that coat our food, whether it's the plastics in nappies and panty liners, whether it's the fertilizers we spray on crops, whether it's the compounds that are put in our makeup and skincare products, we're going to be a very unhealthy generation of people because we not only are already exposed to our natural environment, but we are then readily applying compounds that are just so bad for us. Not to mention, you know, the microplastics even in tampons that we're actually even putting into our bodies, yeah. which feels wild to me. One thing I obviously, having been in the mental health world for so long, the one thing that's undeniable is the rise in stress. What is the relationship between stress and fertility? Amazing that you say that. I just looked at our data and one of the questions that we ask is, how are you feeling? And we give four options, calm, confident and relaxed. And nobody is that. Neutral, stressed and completely stressed and overwhelmed. And way over, about nearly 68% of people are either stressed or completely stressed or overwhelmed. What does that tell you about our day-to-day lives where actually we have so much more convenience at our fingertips? We don't need to, we don't, we barely need to go anywhere to get things deliver to our houses. We have instant connection with friends, with family, and yet we seem to be more stressed than ever. And we know that stress raises our cortisol and cortisol suppresses ovulation and your ability to actually ovulate. There's such a direct correlation between stress and fertility that it's actually almost hard to separate ourselves from that. I always give a very strange example of how the little things in our environment significantly impact our well-being, yes, but actually hormone production too. And the example I give is strange because it's there was a study done on cows, um, milking cows, and they put VR headsets on them to show them green fields as opposed to, you know, these horrific rooms. And they produced a significant amount, I think maybe five more liters per day of milk. And I often say that to people who are trying to conceive because you need a certain amount of hormones in order to really have a healthy cycle. And if you're suppressing your ability through, you know, even people think that reading about something is going to help them when really it's actually distraction from something that's going to help them. And the annoyingly anecdotal and and hard to quantify evidence that we see so frequently is couples who decide, right, I'm booking that's it. We got to go for our fertility journey. And they book the appointment. And between booking the appointment and going to it, they get pregnant. So it's something about giving up, putting your faith in something else. And that's so hard for somebody to actually do because you could try and pretend. But yeah, you see so many people who get pregnant as soon as they've decided to give up. It is fascinating because when you take the subject of fertility, it really shows you such profound evidence for how our psychology impacts all these different organs in the body. In some ways, it feels quite kind of spiritual in many ways. In an amazing way, it actually does feel quite spiritual because I always say that I am hardcore science. But every time I look down the microscope and I see like such incredible detail 
from microscopic cells and the function of each of one every, and every one of those, I'm like, it's bigger than us. Right. And how our mind is affecting how all these different organs want to sing. We've become so practical. We think there's an answer and a reason and a, and a visible justification for everything. When so many people would tell you that one of the most powerful things is your gut instinct, right? How do you quantify gut instinct? Mm -hmm. And in fact, <laughs> I keep referring to our data because it is fascinating to see, but we ask women, have you ever been diagnosed with any of the following? And we list a lot of different reproductive conditions. And, but we have a box at the end that says, no, but I suspect something's up. And when they tick that box in like 90% of cases, they're right. Wow. And yet if you were to go to the doctor and say, I feel like something's up, where do you start? You know, you'd probably be laughed at. And yet it's such a powerful prognostic marker for something actually being wrong with you. And why does that seem strange? Like we should know our bodies and we do know our bodies better than anything. So when you think, I feel like something's up, you're pretty much spot on. It feels to me that GPs or, you know, physicians really should just be hormone doctors in some ways. I think we can't isolate hormones. I think everyone needs to have a, a very clear understanding of endocrinology for right. sure because of its direct implication in so much of our lives. I agree. What are your thoughts on the pill? Because I know there's a lot of conversation right now in the public domain as to is the pill something that has been adequately tested for women? Does it actually impact fertility negatively in the long term? What are your thoughts on that? Is the pill safe? And what is the safest form of contraception that people should be using before they actually want to have a child? I have a lot to say on the pill, um, <laughs> mostly because we're seeing so many women from such a young age being put on hormonal contraception. And to me, this is one of the biggest medical scandals there is that you would put somebody who is endocrinologically immature on something that alters their hormones. So our, our periods have been added as the vital signs. So along with temperature, pallor, pulse, your period is one of your vital signs. So we know this because when you are stressed, when you are sick, your period can stop or can become irregular. And that's basically a very basic evolutionary mechanism in our body to say, this person is experiencing stress and this is not an environment to host a pregnancy. So your reproductive sh function shuts down. And we see a lot of cases of people with what's called hypothalamic amenorrhea. Their periods stop because they're either over-exercising and or under-eating. That's basically your body saying, this person is running a lot and it can't tell the difference between you running for exercise and you running away from caveman. And so it stops that reproductive function as a protective mechanism to say, every bit of reserves you have needs to go into keeping you alive. And we can't right now support an additional life. And so it's a really amazing protective mechanism that we have, but it's also an amazing notification system that our menstrual cycle patterns and symptoms are really amazing notifications to say, something's not right with you. And yet, what do we do when we put somebody on a pill? We just mute the notifications. Mm. So it seems strange to me that in such a connected world where we receive hundreds of notifications every hour and acknowledge a majority of them, whether it's messages, texts, WhatsApps, Instagram, emails, and yet our body could be telling us the biggest notification ever, which is that you're never going to be able to respond to all of that because you're too tired mm. of your hormones. And yet we mute it from such a young age. And if you present at a young age with, you know, hormonal acne or irregular bleeding or, or painful periods, 
nothing is going to really make you, when you're put on a, something that, that blocks that, right? At what point do you decide in your 20s or 30s, I think it's time to bring that back in my life? Mm-hmm. You don't. So people stay on their form of contraception for a decade or more and only come off it when they're deciding that they need to conceive. So they have no idea what's going on in their bodies, whether something has actually gone really awry at a much earlier age because they're masking or mimicking a cycle. And then that could cause kind of long-term impacts that they don't actually understand that their body has gone awry and actually they're working that out in their 50s. Exactly. Wow. So would your recommendation be find other ways, alternatives? Not necessarily. I just don't think it should be a Band-Aid that gets put on everyone. What amazes me is that you would think after our conversation that if somebody had all of these symptoms, you'd check their hormones first before putting them on additional hormones. Right. But nobody's ever has their hormones tested before they put on hormonal contraception. Mm. They just put on the pill and if it works out for you, great. If it doesn't, come back and we'll change it to something else. So I think as a first line call, you should check your hormones. Then there's many clinical reasons why you might put somebody on a form of contraception or hormone contraception that can actually help with regularity or... But as a first line call, I think you should understand what your symptoms and your hormones are doing. So for those that are just purely using it as a contraceptive, is there a form of the pill that does that in the most safe and least disruptive way? Or actually, is your advice just go back to the good old condom? Honestly, this is weird, but my advice is that we start educating men on when you can get somebody pregnant as we start educating ourselves on when we can get pregnant too. Mm. So when you think there's only a few days out in every month that you can actually get pregnant, and yet we take pills every single day, and we're so disconnected with that. Once you become a little bit more, once you start tracking your cycles, you almost know exactly when you've ovulated. Your body really does tell you. And yet we're so detached from that, that there's a real conversation. I will know, I will have a conversation and we'll be like, I have ovulated today or I'm ovulating this week. It's like, you just have better awareness. So I think there are other ways that don't have to be medical that we can have open conversations to educate both parties to say when I'm likely or not likely to get pregnant. What is the best way to track ovulation? I know there's apps that will then tell you, oh, this is your ovulatory window, but that window can often be quite big. Yeah. And and those apps are based on everyone having a 28 day cycle and very few people actually have a 28 day cycle. To me, I think um, there are many different signs and people go to have ovulation quite differently. Some people feel what's called mittelschmerz, which is middle pain, which is like the egg literally being released. And it's a pain that you'll get at alternating sides. Um, each month, the cervical mucus changes. We love talking about mucus. It's quite amazing to think that when you release an egg, your cervical mucus is like egg yolk. It quite literally is like egg yolk. And once you've stopped ovulating, it goes to being creamy because of the change in hormones. And what are your thoughts on mapping temperature? I think it's good for people who are maybe have irregular ovulation, and a lot of people right. do. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. Honestly, I think as a metric on its own, it's insufficient. I think many of the independent mechanisms that we use are insufficient. We should be looking at everything. Am I right in thinking that if you're mapping ovulation, sperm can stay in the body for a few days? Yes, like, What is that process? So we know that sperm can live for up to three days in your reproductive tract. So that is worth bearing in mind because a lot of people, again, it goes back to when we are, when we rely on statistics, 
we do ourselves a disservice because statistics say that everyone falls within this beautiful bell curve. But when you look at a bell curve of statistics, there's a lot of people here and a lot of people here. Mm. But when we say everyone ovulates on day 14, then the people who ovulate here are thinking, okay, I'm, I'm fine for a few days. So it means that really it under, it's down to personalization. So knowing when you are going to ovulate and how long your cycle is and uh, the, the buffer of days before and after. What is the greatest fertility myth that you constantly feel that you're busting? Oh, I think the biggest fertility myth is that we can have babies till we're 40. And we see celebrities, we're constantly seeing celebrities that are like with airbrushed ovaries mm -hmm. and they've got these miraculous twins. Nobody mentions IVF or they've got these miraculous babies in their 50s. Nobody mentions donor eggs. Mm -hmm. And so what other women read or see is that they're fine. They've got loads of time. We have people come to us and they're you know, 40 and they're like, oh, I'm just figuring out whether or not I'm going to have a baby. And I'm like, you better figure that out soon because it's not really a choice you're going to have, actually. What's the average age of the person that does a fertility test? 28 to 32. Well done, those women. Yeah. To be honest, that yeah. sounds like, you know, that that's great. Let's try and get that. Let's I think be on the mission we to have get an younger. internal biological clock, I think, that really has a starts ticking quite loudly as we approach 30. Yeah, I can testify to that. <laughs> You write a lot and talk a lot about the race inequality within fertility. Would you mind sharing more? Yeah. So this year we launched um, what's called the Black Women's Health Initiative because the statistics and prevalence of reproductive conditions are very different among different ethnicities. It's one of the first things that we built into our health assessment was to say, how can we stratify appropriately for age? for different conditions, for different symptoms, but also from, from ethnicity. So for example, when we give, when this is what I talk about statistics or, you know, generalized guidelines being doing a disservice to people. When you say the average age of menopause is 51, well, if you're of South Asian origin, it's actually four years earlier. So when you're getting symptoms four years before that, people might think you're crazy, but the reality is you're actually expected to have those symptoms at that point. And when we looked at, um, some of the health outcomes in black women, to me, it was just so frustrating because we can't really get to the bottom of it. And people keep talking about the statistics without actually backing it up with action. Mm. So um, this comes to maternal outcomes. This comes to even fertility outcomes. And so we looked at our data to see, we know that black women approach fertility services, so IVF, much later in life and after much longer of a time trying to conceive. But we wondered in the absence of having to go to a clinic, i.e. through an at-home test, would it still be the same? And it was. Black women are on average likely to be four years older before they do a test and to have been trying to conceive for five years <laughs> before they will actually seek help. And so we're really running initiative on trying to figure out why is it cultural? Is it education? Is it I don't know what the barriers to entry are. Is it dismissal? And I think, you know, a lot of it is dismissal. A lot of it is part of this ongoing taboo that, you know, people won't approach services for help because there's still such a cultural element of blame for many people. We blame women if they can't get pregnant, despite many people going through fertility journeys and realizing actually she's perfectly fine and he has no sperm whatsoever. I was talking to an amazing woman who has an incredible health services company in Africa and other developing continents. And she was also sharing how much taboo there is around infertility in different developing countries. I'm really interested because 
when I talk to people about the decline in fertility globally, a lot of people will then say, oh, but the birth rate is going way up in, you know, places in Africa still have a really strong birth rate. Are those trends deceiving? Are we seeing a global decline? What are your thoughts on that? I think those trends are very deceiving. We're seeing a massive decline in birth rates and fertility rates globally, such to the extent that the replacement rate is now at a critical level. And the replacement rate is essentially number of people born versus those who die. So we need more people to be born than those who die because otherwise we don't have enough people to look after those old people. The best example is in Japan where more nappies were sold last year for old people than babies. And where even in their current population, I think only 800,000 babies were born last year and there's over 2 million people over at the age of 90. And there's just not enough people within the economy, firstly, to look after old people, but to support the, a growing economy. If you were to purely look at it from an economic perspective, mm. economies cannot thrive in the absence of investment into reproduction and fertility and women's health because unless and until we have enough babies being born to support and nurture new economies and new growth, we are going to be declining as a species. And we are going to be a much older planet that doesn't have enough young people to support new industry, new growth. Innovation. Innovation. Some people are calling humans endangered an endangered species. I would agree. I think we are blinded to the fact that we are essentially from an evolutionary animal point, you know, here to procreate. And we've turned into very different beings. We're, we are neglecting our bodies to a huge extent, and we're certainly neglecting reproduction. And that's having a really big impact, not just on fertility rates, but pregnancy as well. Yeah. You know, pregnancy, we are not meant to have babies in our 40s. Can we do it? Yes, we can. But all of the obstetric complications and risks go way up. So we're putting an awful lot. And it, and again, I go back to just like, let's think logically about our bodies. Would you put your money on a 20-year-old finishing a marathon or a 40-year-old finishing a marathon sooner, even in terms of recovery mm. or injury? It's sad and it's not fair at all. And a lot of it, again, comes down to this big myth that we can do it. So it doesn't change that it's true, unfortunately. What would you like to see change? And I know I kind of asked you this question, but I would love to kind of hear your real call to action, whether that be all ages that listen to this episode or and even from a government level too. I know more funding is like number one for you, but what are other maybe even smaller practical things that, and, and I guess also another one would be tracking your hormones, but should there be funding for people to freeze their eggs or, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in like, what needs to happen, do you think? The biggest thing that needs to happen is better education from a much mm. younger age, right? You know, people are talking about bringing it into schools. Now, I think normalizing our anatomy and our biology from a very young age is very important. You know, we teach kids from such a young age the most redundant things like what noises farm animals make or so much about dinosaurs, so much about dinosaurs. But we don't teach them about our anatomy or our bodies my daughter, who's nearly four, um, when my partner said, mommy grew you in her tummy, said, no, daddy, in her uterus. And I was like, that's my girl. <laughs> and I just thought, 
That's how it should be. You should understand, like, why wouldn't you understand every single organ in your body and where it is? To me, it was important because if she says, I have a tummy ache, I want to know where. And I want her to understand as well that there's lots of different things. So much sickness occurs from the fact that people can't isolate what it is that's causing them hurt. And a better understanding of all the different organs within this, you know, packed cavity could really reduce so many poor health outcomes. It's just better understanding from an early age. So I don't think there's an age that is too early to teach about our biologies. We over-sexualize reproduction, right? Mm. We over-sexualize it to make it seem like they should be of a certain age to learn about it. No, they should know that we've got glands in our body that produce different, you know, responses and teaching them about very simple ways to compare that. Like when you see food, you salivate. It's because you're, you're, you have a gland producing saliva because it's preparing you for digestion. It's really easy. And then when you say, when you get a fright, you produce adrenaline. That's so that your heart beats faster to get you the hell out of there if you need to. There are ways that you can teach about hormones and bodily responses and functions and weave in about reproduction, sperm or egg formation much earlier without it seeming crude. I think it's, it's adults that cast that lens of it being somewhat sexual because that's how we were brought up yeah. to think that anything to do with reproduction was or menstruation was dirty or taboo so I think we can make a big change by starting earlier well truly thank you so much for the work you do you're a complete inspiration I'm so grateful that you were put on the earth and <laughs> created something like fertility because I'm truly on the just in any way I can support your mission and sharing this information because, you know, it's something that I'm going through personally and I just hope more women can access the information. Thank you. Where is the best place to find you and talk us through, like, how does one get a fertility test? What's the process? You head to fertilityhealth.com. We're on Instagram and everything we put on Instagram is very educational. And then you just do the health assessment and it will arrive at your house the next day or the following day. And you can do the test on the third day of your period. And then we have all of the additional clinical services, whether it's talking to a gynecologist, getting a scan, going for egg freezing or IVF. Um, It's all there. So there's a lot of onward help after you do your test. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.